Good evening and welcome to the Viva Coffs podcast. I am one of your hosts, Graham Spence, and tonight I'm joined by Alison Graham. Hi, Graham. How are you? Well, <laughs> well, I woke up this morning. I've got to tell you, in fact, you're part of the reason I woke up this way this morning. I was <laughs> lying in my bed and then I'm pretty sure my phone, I mean, you can actually see it's plugged in. I've had to plug in my phone tonight because the battery is that dead. It vibrated itself off the table in the room um, and basically smashed into the floor because it was going that that mental with what was happening today. So that that is how I am today. I woke up this morning to my phone basically falling off the table and to the news that the current First Minister of Scotland, um, Nicola Sturgeon, is about to become the former yesterday's woman, as it were, of Scotland, and she is out of the Scottish National. She is out as the leader of the Scottish National Party. So that that is how I am today. How are you, Alison? Yeah, I mean, I also kind of woke up to thinking how my day was going to pan out, and you know, it went slightly differently. Um, but you know, trying to—I was actually supposed to have a work meeting at the time that this. A press conference was on from uh, Nicola Surgeon, and then my work meeting actually just got moved at the last minute. Completely nothing to do with me. So I actually got to sit and watch it and uh, kind of start to unpack what was actually going on and what was likely to happen and try and pick up any of the kind of cues from it. So I think I've had a chance to kind of digest a lot of that as the day's gone on and go back and kind of check some bits and what have you. Thought thought there's a few interesting things to come out of it that we can hopefully go through today. But I think the main thing for me, as you say, you know, a week's a long time in politics. It's we're now at a stage it's you know sometimes a matter of hours, days and hours. So from somebody who's had complete control over the party for eight years and the country, um, as you say, tomorrow she will be, you know, yesterday's politician. I know she's saying she's going to stand stay on as an MSP but you know who knows when the next yeah. election is going to be that I'll, everything seems to be up in the air at the moment which in a way a lot of the stuff we've discussed is about the, this real stuck in the mud position that Scotland seems to have been in that there's been a lack of movement and uh, you know in any if you want a reaction you need certain things to take place you need to turn up the heat, you need a catalyst, we've talked about that a lot, what are the catalysts for change, you need to have a, a real concentration of effort, and we've discussed that with things like constitutional conventions, and also, um, you know, the, you know, turn up the temperature a bit, but one of the key things I think um, I would really like to, to spend some time on in tonight's podcast is looking at what happens next, and what Scotland learned from this, because at the end of the day, as we've said so many times, politicians, political parties are transient in the future of a nation and I think we need to get perspective back on what does this mean for Scotland, what has Scotland learned and what do we do next and how do we take the learnings into something more robust. You discussed in the, board, in the, the blog um, a few weeks ago you kind of called it with the there's a hole in the ship blog um, about you know at some point for Nicola there was a tipping point and that seems to have been reached. Um, and now um, we need to ensure the next vessel 
is robust. And one of the key things for me in that is that, you know, the, the surface area is spread, that we never get into position again, that we've got such a single point of failure, potentially, because it, it's really, it's an easy target for your opposition. And it's also, pe people are human beings, you know, there's a lot of focus on that today, um, about, you know, the kind of, the personal um, aspect of being in a position like that and the toll it takes and stuff, whatever you may think um, of Nicola as an individual or as a leader, etc. So I think lots of lessons learned and I think the politician, you know, personal politician, personality politics needs to be something we learn to move on from because I think Scotland's got an opportunity to move away from the Americanised model that's seeped into Westminster politics and has has come up to Scotland as well and particularly in the last eight years when there's a lot of been it's about the first minister it's about you know I'm with Nicola and you know this kind of branding which regardless of what you think is not good for her and it's not good for the country we, we need no. well we need to breadth the talent and I think that's where we need to learn to move on to I think as well I mean there's not much point in us spending too much time talking about Nicola Sturgeon. I don't think we're going to add anything to it that other people necessarily don't know or add anything that other people wouldn't necessarily pick up on. So we're, le we're left with you know, what we do best, which is Vivacos, as you said, we predicted, um, we predicted a little while ago that Nicola Sturgeon would be departing, and certainly the leadership, the ship of her leader, would sink, and it did do. But that's not the only time we've called it. I mean, this th th this has went on for a little while. Um, the, in, on the 23rd of November, I'm pulling it up as we sit here, so on the 23rd of November, we put out a blog, and it said, can Sturgeon save her premiership? And it focused around whether or not... Um, in the wake of the Supreme Court decision, yeah. Nicola Sturgeon, you know, could maintain her premiership and could lead Scotland to independence and certainly lead to her political party. And, it, you know, I think one of the things that we have to take from that is actually the answer to that was, no, she couldn't. Yeah. Um, and we're in, a, we're in a rather unique situation where she tried and failed. Um, and I think possibly she held on for the gender recognition reform, and that's probably one of the last things she would see through the door, which I don't think is actually going to make it to the statute book. But, you know, that was what happened. So a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, today actually, we, you know, there's a hole in the ship, Nicholas Sturgeon got to save it, um, and I don't think she had much latitude to survive that. So we ended up being right on that, and that leads us to today's blog, which we put out, which is what happens now. And this is where, you know, we're a wee bit ahead again. And if you're a listener of the VivaCost podcast or a watcher on YouTube of the VivaCost podcast or an avid reader of the blog, you will always know the information before everyone else because, quite frankly, we're always just that little bit ahead. Not that we're, not that we're gloating today. Um, I can see Alison smirking off in the distance as I'm saying we're always a little bit ahead. So, anyway... Um, and I say that I mean, we're, we're not actually ahead. Like my phone, the first I knew about it is my phone kind of fell off the table, and I knew something had happened. But um, so let's let's go through some facts where I'm sure Alison's going to chip in after we get through them. But the first one: the leader of the SNP does not actually need to be an MSP. It can be any card-carrying member of the the SNP. 
that was a member before nominations opened, which was today. So if you were a member yesterday, you can you can apply to be the leader. Um, the party leader will always be the Scottish Parliament. The, time, the ballot. You need to retain your membership to the ballot. Yeah, sorry. You can't. You, you, if you leave, you you that's you. You're bumped. You're done. So the party leader will always be the Scottish Parliamentary Group leader if they're if they're an MSP. Um, this is slightly different to Westminster because the Parliamentary Group leader at Westminster doesn't necessarily um, have to be the party leader if they are in there. It's a separate process. So for the Scottish Parliament, the party leader is always the Parliamentary Group leader. If the deputy leader, so let's say an MP got elected party leader, it doesn't automatically mean they'll be group leader at Westminster, but what it does mean is the deputy leader, which is currently Keith Brown, would become the Scottish uh, the Scottish Parliament group leader. That doesn't, though, believe it or not, mean that he'd become the First Minister. And nor I've seen suggested that John Swinney would automatically become the First Minister. Oddly, um, although... John Swinney does have the position of Deputy First Minister, it's not a constitutionally, well, it's not, not really a constitution in Scotland, but it's not a recognised position in a line of succession. So the DFM doesn't replace the FM, that's, that's not a thing. Like, there has to be a vote of Parliament to choose a new FM. <coughs> um, if you want to challenge to be leader, you must have 100 members that support you, and they must be spread over a minimum of 20 branches. So it's quite a significant thing to stop random people just causing challenge for challenge's sake. If there's only one candidate left in the selection, by the day ballot opens, um, there will be no election and there will be no vote. And I'm going to come back to that. Um, all SNP members will be able to vote and only if you're an SNP member as of like this morning when they opened the thing. So if you're gonna, you know, you might, you might if you join today get in, but as of tomorrow you're definitely not in the vote. Mind you, their IT is absolutely rubbish and their digital rubbish. So I mean, you're probably yeah, can, can there's every possibility that. that yeah. I'll, I'll just come in there, Graham, because this has come out from the National Secretary Lorna Flynn, and it says um, when nominations yeah. open, which is today on the fifteenth. So. Technically, any any member who joined, anybody who joined today is a new member who wanted to be part of that election um, nomination. I would say would have quite a strong case because it doesn't actually time bound it. It says you know the date of the nomination rather than putting a timestamp. So I think um, yeah. you know the kind of bit of so, and you have to stay a member, which is what I meant before, not personally. Mind you, it's, it's half ten now. By the time this goes out, it's definitely after midnight, yeah, so there's, you're there's too late. There's a lot on Twitter about it, though, and I think it's, um, you know, it's... It's a good important. point. Yeah, and also, yeah. the other thing Lorna Flynn put in her letter was that the NEC would decide the timetable, which is interesting, because the, the timetable's already laid out, which I think you're going to come on to yeah. explain. I mean... The, 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 I'll come back to this because that's a good point and I want to come back to that but anyway um, all SNP members as of the nomination date will vote using the STV voting system it's a ranked voting system so you vote 1, 2, 3, 4 until you can't be bothered voting anymore you, I mean, the advice of this um, blog is always do not vote for people in STV elections that you do not want elected your vote this vote I mean, people didn't even understand vote till you book would mean that you stopped when you started to book. It, it, it didn't mean vote and book and keep going and ride it, it through. Don't vote for people in general 
in no election should you vote for people you do not want to be elected. So don't do that. If you're, if you're in the SNP, do not go in there and say, oh, I kept voting because... No, stop when you don't like the candidate. That's the game. Um, <coughs> the nomination close is 77 days, which is very arbitrary, but 77 days from the opening of nominations, which was confirmed to be today, which means that nominations will close um, third of May. on the 3rd of May. The 3rd of May. So I think we said May the 4th be with you. Yeah, we did. <laughs> had three Star Wars. May the 4th, you will have a um, list announced. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where the first compressible element, I think, comes in. So a ballot will be, I mean, the 77 days is so that you can go and get your 100 members and your 20 branches. Um, and to get the branches to select you, to get the 77 members, conceivably you've got to go and become a well-known or well-liked individual. Um, the ballot is then sent out, and it, it says the ballot will be sent out 35 days after nomination close. I think it'll be much quicker if there are less candidates. Yeah. And to be honest, it's not really... I mean, in the 77 days, candidates will get a flair for whether or not they are, you know, suitable for the, the post. And they don't slim it down at all. So there could be 50 candidates, there could be two candidates, there could be a single candidate. It's perfectly reasonable that in the 77 days, some everyone bar one candidate struggles to get 100 members and 20 branches, in which case the bloody thing's done in about a minute. In, in so that will be the 7th of June. Yeah. In context, the recent NEC elections have had lots of open posts that people have not actually filled. Yeah. So you, they've not even had enough candidates so, for the posts. So this will be a real test of the SNP membership's appetite for engagement and appetite for change. Because the, the one that had a big turnout was the one that um, I was involved in in 2020. Um, that there was a big surge in votes and it was a real competition. In fact, they let... They let everybody through. The every, everybody met the criteria of the nomination, so everybody went through to the ballot, which I think was the first mm -hmm. thing that happened. So, well, this will be a real interesting time for the SNP as a party. So, thirty-five days after nomination close, the the, the the ballot will be sent out. So you'll get your ballot on the seventh of June. Um, and then you have 21 days, the shortest segment in all this, you have 21 days to vote and return your ballot. Um, and it will be the 28th of June, which, you know, it doesn't actually confirm when the result will come out after that, but I presume that if they know the result of the 28th of June, it closes at 4, I think it's 4pm on the 28th of June. So, I mean, reasonably, it's not going to take long, because 99% of members will vote via the online voting platform. And then there will be some paper ballots. Who'd assume we'll try and be? I mean, post comes in at eleven o'clock or something. It's not going to. It's not yeah. going to take till four o'clock. Royal Mail might call a strike, which would be quite funny. Yeah, I'm thinking. Um, so, twenty eighth, um, they announce the new party leader, and then amusingly, um, just to really screw things up, Parliament goes on recess on the first of July. Yep. <laughs> We've got to the fifth of June to vote for a first minister under that timetable. Yeah. And they won't like that because it's the twenty ninth of June. I mean, I can check this twenty ninth of June, twenty twenty three. I'm pretty sure it's going to be a Friday, and they usually, they I usually think, don't sit on I, the Friday. I think it's the Thursday. I think the thirtieth. Is it? 
Friday, yeah. It's the first, I'm pretty sure, is uh, Saturday. Yeah, the, you're right. So the 29th is a Thursday. And then the 30th is a... <laughs> and then the first is a Saturday, so yeah. So I can't imagine that it's going to be a particularly popular contest there. Anyway, if you missed that and you can't be bothered rewinding, it's actually available on Viva Cost just now. The National Secretary does have the power to shrink that. There are, I mean, I don't know, they would have to justify it in some methods, but they have the ability to shrink that and make it a smaller um, time frame. Um, the second election that will happen is quite separate and it is for the First Minister of Scotland um, just because you're the SNP party leader it doesn't actually mean you're by default the First Minister of Scotland it does actually mean you have to get scrutinised by the the MSPs in Parliament someone has to propose you, you have to get put through um, the other parties will undoubtedly put somebody through although you only have to win a simple majority you do in practice kind of have to get 50% plus one because if you don't get 50% plus one, you have the whole problem that at any point they'll pull your government out of power. So, I mean, reasonably, SNP members have no real limit on who they elect. However, there is a problem that the Scottish Parliament must be able to approve the new SNP leader, um, and you'd either need to do that with the support of the Greens, the Lib Dems, Labour, or the Conservatives. You, there, are, there, unfortunately, are not enough um, people to do it yourself. So, Oddly, the next First Minister will need to be approved, I presume, by the Greens. So, welcome to a very interesting set of events. Alison, I'm sorry for rambling there. No, 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 that was really, really informative. So, what that leaves us with is quite an interesting dilemma from the SNP. They've got a few circles to try and square. So, if they do this, you know, some may say this is quite a cynical timescale based on, you know, the, the Supreme Court, as you mentioned, was back in November. The special mm -hmm. conference, which was alluded for the new year, is in the middle of March, um, and it's to discuss the options. Now, the date of the October 19th has never officially been taken off the table, although they have stood down civil servants, etc. But there's still a lot of people in the movement that think the 19th of October is, is doable. Now, if you're not going to have a First Minister and a leader until literally right up at recess, if that happens, when do you pass a bill to actually change the date of the election, which needs you know a 50% plus one majority to actually change the election date? Um, that would need to go through the Parliament. Who's going to do that during, a, during an election contest? Is, you know, is this, you may say, on one hand, this is to encourage you know, a, a continuation of the SNP's anointment of new leaders, which is, a, you know, for me, a bad precedent that was set in the previous handover. Um, or is, is this going to be a truly democratic event, which I think, regardless of what you think, it will breathe fresh air in where it's been very stagnant for a long time. And I think we need a big you know, breath of democracy to come into the SNP and start to blow through Scotland and the Parliament, because I think across the board, people are getting so turned off, um, the whole political setup at the moment. So if you want to show yourself as the party that can actually take independence forward, how do you square that? You know, Are they going to like put their hands up and say, look, this, is, this now cannot be this year, 
but we should still prioritise getting the mechanism to be able to change the election, to be in control of it in the same way Scotland's Parliament is controlling the franchise now. Um, because at the moment, the event that Nicola Sturgeon had said as the plebiscite is an election that she doesn't control the franchise or the date of. So if you're leaving that up to your opposition, they're always going to advantage themselves. And, you know, it's happened with Theresa May um, back the last time when Nicola Sturgeon said she was going to have a referendum. Um, she then pulled a general election. So October 19th could end up being, we don't know, it could end up being a UK general election around that time. It's also not a particularly great time to have an election in Scotland. By the time you get to middle of October, not only are schools on holiday and people are potentially away and, you know, have they all signed up to you know, postal votes, etc., which is not a brilliant sign-up here, particularly for non-electories. I know it's, it's got better in recent years, but, you know, it, it's not it's not the preferable date, I would suggest. The last referendum was in mm. spring, late summer, early spring. Um, so, uh, sorry, late summer, early autumn. Oh, um, so I would suggest that yes. or, or a spring election would be, if you're looking at this just from an independence um campaign point of view would be a, a preferable time. So I think realistically there's a lot of things that they need to really come out and show who they are. We talk a lot about written constitutions. You know, anything in a contract can be written implied or you know, verbal and I think they need to start demonstrating by their actions where they stand, what they stand for, what they won't stand for and if they really want to get people behind this as a, as a democracy they need to start showing where the SNP fits an independence you know, future for Scotland rather than the assumption that it's all about them because I, I do think those days are gone and I don't see there being any mm -hmm. appetite for a new leader that people will go I'm with whoever, I'm with X on the side of a bus. I think those days I think the Boris Johnson um, Prime Ministership has scunnered people of you know all yeah. the personality, no no substance and policy. There, there's a lot of policies you said before, like GRR. At the moment, is by any any prism and definition is an absolute burrich. You know, if you're for it, then it's probably unimplementable. If you are against it, it's you know why are we spending all this effort on something that I think the latest poll showed three percent of Scotland prioritise. Um, where the top priorities yeah. were the NHS, the cost of living crisis and the economy. So if we really want to show that it's a government that represents the people and what the people's imperatives are, then we really need to start opening the doors and start engaging people and listening and bringing people back into the democratic room rather than preaching to them from a podium. And I think these days, you know, what might have worked well in COVID when we were all you know, like a captive, literally a captive audience, um, and looking for a direction from centre, that those days are now past, and I think there will be a lot more appetite for some real change. And there's a there's a big weight on the SNP members' shoulders now to make sure, regardless of who you prefer. And again, we're back to the bookies. You know who who's the, the runners and riders and stuff. I think there's a much bigger conversation to be had around policy to get away from just, are we just looking at you know a new bum on the seat rather than what does this mean? 
who are the, this is a good opportunity for the SNP to have a retrospective on who they are, what they stand for, what their position is, where they fit, where others fit in this independence um, movement, and you know beyond that in Scotland. I mean, the people who will not vote for independence, but you know still have to you know get behind you know a cohesive you know government and a, and a democratic structure and feel safe there. So I think a constitutional convention we've talked about a lot. I think this is a prime opportunity to actually, you know, take this beyond just, you know, party politics and start to open this up to the wider Scotland. That is, for me, the utter imperative. If you support independence, whatever happens, everything you do must be looking at this through getting that on the front page, that on, you know, people's conversation at dinner tables. You know, whether you're talking about the cost of living crisis, whether you're talking about, um, you know, the, the NHS, the future and the security of the NHS and our economy in the short term, but imperatively in the long, the medium to long term, you know, what does independence offer an opportunity there compared to the brick wall of devolution just now, or potentially the unpicking of that by some of the actions from um, a fairly hostile, you know, Westminster government? And we don't know who the next government is going to be in Westminster, and we don't control it, and we will literally be passengers watching that event. So everything that happens in the next um, few months, I think, is really going to put the spotlight on politicians to start stepping up and giving a real pers prospectus of what we need to do and, and listening to people as well as talking at them. So it could be a time of any, any kind of change is always a bit uncomfortable for some people, but it's also an opportunity, and I think if people grasp this as an opportunity that you don't make omelets without breaking eggs, you know, sometimes we've talked before about can new can old faces make new cases? Well, one of the old faces is now leaving exit stage left. I think that might be quite a lesson for a few people involved to say, you know, is this now time to see some fresh thinking and in a wider team? rather than this personality politics that's dominated Scottish politics for too long? Well, that's a, that's a good point, because we've been, you know, we've had Nicola Sturgeon, we've had Alex Salmon, both very long-term, and certainly yeah. there's an argument that... There's strong an argument that... Um, sorry? I said both big, strong personalities as well. Yeah, bo both very large, you know, personalities, and both large players, and you know, they've each had their respective times, and they've, they've both, I mean, to Nicola Sturgeon's credit, she did win a good few elections. She was capable of winning elections. She just wasn't capable of implementing the, the manifesto behind the election, which I think was the big issue. We've, 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 we've now got a situation where the SNP's always been hostile to developing talent, and any emerging talent must be quashed or set aside mm -hmm. or made sure it couldn't challenge um, the First Minister, and that, that's been prevalent for a good little while. Um, and there's no, there's no obvious, you know, challenger. And, you know, there's, there, there's a good number of people that are going to put themselves forward for this. And, you know, I think the BBC, the BBC were running some ridiculous um, document, and, it, you know. So I think they've got some up there just now. So they've got John Swinney. John Swinney in 2014, and I'm pretty sure much more recently, said that categorically not, you couldn't drag me into the job. I'm not doing that job. Let's not talk about it. 
Um, then we've got Kate Forbes, who I think is um, a, a realistic candidate. I would I would think that Kate Forbes will be quite a strong candidate in it. Uh, we've got Angus Robertson, who I'm fairly certain we will see as a candidate. I don't think he'd be any good as a candidate for it. Well, he might be a good all right candidate. He wouldn't be... I don't think he'd be a great First Minister, to be totally honest. Um, we've got Hamza Yousaf, who again, I'm not entirely convinced we'll see him put himself forward, but he, he is a man who has a, an awful lot of self-charm to himself, so I could see him wanting to. Um, uh, again, is you know, is that why he settled his nursery case and everything? Get out of that, get out of any trouble? You know, how long has this been brewing? Yeah, I thought that at the time. Actually, like, I thought, is this is this cleaning house before something mm-hmm. happens? Which is why yeah, why want no legal troubles? Yeah, you know. um, And then we come on, and they've got um, Joanna Cherry, who again, I think, is another strong candidate. There's a lot of people saying Joanna Cherry can't because she's an uh, an MP rather than MSP. There's nothing in the party rules that forbid yeah. an MP from being party leader. Um, then we've got Stephen Flynn who ruled himself out today and said he's not interested in the job so we're not going to see him and then they've, they've randomly got Mary McAllen in there and yeah. you know, I don't mean to be too, I mean Mary McAllen unfortunately has, I mean Mary McAllen's talent is rather that she's Nicola Sturgeon's pal yeah. I, mean, I would try 3% not, who Mary McAllen it, was to be honest yeah well I don't I don't think they would. Um, I think there's um, the the one that the the Herald are running with is they think Ash Regan is the next one, and they think that would be kind of. I, I mean, I think the comment was that that's the Joanna Cherry Light of the you know she's Joanna Cherry Light. I think they called her, which would make sense because then you'd have a very strong power dynamic between you know Joanna Cherry in Westminster, and you'd have Ash Regan as possibly the First Minister in Scotland. Again, I'm not entirely sure if that's the combination that will win out, but it is the one that have come forward. Um, I think there will be at least one or two other, you know, um, horses in the race, and I think they will they will avail themselves quite quickly, because getting that 100 members is quite difficult. And I think the other point that... I think we wanted to cover, and I know me and you spoke about this early on, um, was was that in this situation, it possibly would be a good time to have a look. Do you want to have the First Minister also being the party leader? And do you want the party leader have, you know, because you've got the scope to have the Scottish Parliamentary party leader, You've got the scope to have the Westminster party leader. And then you've got the scope to have the actual party leader, who would be free to work on things such as independence without necessarily being beholden to the politics of the Scottish Parliament of any given day, which, you know, the SNP haven't exactly got the the cleanest record on right now. Mm. So I think Keith Brown think? was originally touted for that as de- when he got the deputy. He was an originally, you know, he was mm. relieved of his ministerial post and like, previous to having yeah. a new one back with Justice Minister. But that, that was supposed to be to focus on independence and obviously nothing actually happened. So I think SNP have kind of like danced around the idea of this. But to take it seriously, you know, it is a new way of looking at it to say, do you play more as a team to cover more of the pitch? 
rather than having everything through this central you know, control structure. And I think the thing that's made that even more um, prevalent in you know, Nicola Sturgeon's um, first ministership is the fact her husband's a CEO. So the business you know, side of the party, all everything comes through like, the one address, which is a very odd situation that's you know, been, been spoken about over a number of years, but different people would almost just accept it as well. That's the way it is. But you know, yeah. th- this has clearly caused a lot of problems. So, is the the opposite of that to say, well, actually, have a have a wider spread of talent? Like I said before, for like you know, one of the things in chemical reactions is to have a bigger surface area, so cover more ground, mm-hmm. have smaller particles on a bigger surface area. So instead of one solid mass of power actually disperse the power over different areas and let them focus deeper into the areas that they are covered in. So have a very strong team at Westminster. Um, you've actually got, you mentioned Joanna Terry, you've got Joanna Terry in a very you know, um, eminent position as the, the chair of the Joint Commission on Human Rights. That's a very international looking body as well. Um, it's cross party. So everything you look at from Scotland's future negotiation for an independent Scotland will rely very much on people who can build consensus and come to very strong agreements. And I think that experience is, is invaluable. And also the kind of respect mm-hmm. and credibility there. So you really need to look at not just who's your favourite. And I, I, mean, I would really implore people to stop looking at it like this. Who's your favourite? Or who do you think is the personality? And look at what do they offer? And where are their talents Best, you know, fitted because you know I knew it about Hamza. I did think that when I saw it at the time. I thought, oh, oh, oh is this um, is this an imminent, you know, change of leadership? When I saw that um, come out, and then nothing kind of happened. But obviously, it wasn't that long ago. Um, you know, the settlement with the the nursery it all kind of went quiet after being on the front pages, which I think was quite cynically just when his wife was up for kind of no- a nomination for election for council. I think. So it's a good way of getting. You see, there's no such thing as bad publicity. You know, like to get on the front page, and because one of the big problems people have got, unless you're a known face, you're at a disadvantage. Because a lot of people just vote for people they know, they've heard of, and it's yeah. kind of, the, even if you're not a massive fan, it's the known versus the unknown. So I think, um, like the Mary McAllen thing, I thought the same thing. I thought, do three percent of people even know who Mary McAllen is? If you weren't that involved with the kind of political scene, she's only been she's a minister, I think, but she's only been in. Um, one term. I mean, she's only you know, which is quite unusual. So, you usually you've kind of got to come in and you know, look, prove prove your your worth if you like. But um, th- this whole connected thing really needs to stop. It needs to get back to being a kind of a meritocracy if you like in the parliament. Because I think across the board, including um, or in fact more particularly the opposition, has been very um, you know diluted of talent. And I think you know Nicola has won successive elections, but really up against what opposition. Um, and, you know, the independence card has got over the line when there's really been not a huge alternative, you know, for people to, to cast those votes that made people surge into the SNP in 2015. So, you know, I think more testing times make people step up their game. And I think that's what's absolutely needed now. People need to start stepping up and saying, if we're serious about independence, we actually need to build a team that can be serious about independence and not just talk the talk, but actually walk the walk and start making real inroads across the whole pitch, not just in one area. There's been a lot of focus on mechanism, you know, a lot of focus on 
all were, you know the Supreme Court thing with no backup of you know no no seemingly you know thought process into out the different outcomes and we put a lot of stuff on blo- on our blog about this on Viva Cos about the potential outcomes and likelihoods and stuff and I'm thinking you know we did that in like you know an hour or so surely to goodness you know with a, a staff you know like the SNP have got and you know that the you know, the, the, the bodies that they've got in, in there, that they've gamed this out of, you know, we, we took this preemptive action and didn't consider any negative, potential negative outcomes, even though the positive outcome was the outlier in, in all the potential events. So we really need to get back to, um, and, and I hope we can play our part there in trying to bring more of the, the kind of strategists into the into the picture there's a lot of talent across scotland and we need to start giving that talent an outlet and this is not people that want to be in politics per se but people who really are passionate about the future scotland and who want to see things done in a way that's that's not through particularly a a partisan kind of um framing but really look at Okay, what what part does everybody play, whether a politician or or grassroots or civic society, or people who don't support independence? What part do we all have in the future of Scotland? And I think that's um, that's something that we need to start getting. I mean, I've put quite a lot on Twitter, a kind of hashtag raise the bar, because we really do. I mean, the Westminster government is bar so low. You know, I often say, you know, you couldn't get under it if you're a limbo dancer, but you know, we've. In Scotland, we've kept above that bar, but it's so low and going lower all the time that, you know, we should not be tracking ourselves against such a low standard. We should be tracking ourselves against the best in the world, not, you know, our our neighbours who are, who are, you know, really taking democracy to to hell in a handcart at the moment. So we, we really need to start to look beyond this and become more aspirational and ambitious for Scotland's future. And that takes all the talent, even people, almost particularly people you don't agree with. Because if you don't agree with someone and you can have a, a robust, respectful debate, you will get to a better consensus. The, 20, the 2007 Parliament, I think, was the exemplar Parliament in Scotland. Yeah. And we, if we could get back to that kind of place and that kind of politics, I think it would benefit all of Scotland because it would start to become policy solution focused rather than soundbite and chuck it over the wall at some other poor sap to have to work out how to implement, which is why we've got so much legislation sitting on a shelf rather or, or being struck down in courts rather than actually benefiting the you know, solving the problem they set out to solve. Because I think sometimes they just forget what they're actually even trying to, to solve, even if they kind of thought about it in the first place. So before we get you know, into the deposit return scheme, which is a good kind of example of, you know, dealing with garbage, if you like. Um, I think to, to, to finish, we, we need to raise the bar. It's essential. And, you know, if we don't do it now, then when do we do it? This is this is a catalyst. This is a change. This is an opportunity for change. And we need to grab it with both hands. I think, I think you know, you've brought up DRS there for the deposit return scheme, which is the um, the, the current the, the big controversy just now because effectively they've managed to come up with a deposit return scheme um, that 
business is kind of looking at and they're not even looking at it and saying we don't want to do this they're looking at it and they're like is there a stupider way you could have come up with it like yeah. prepayments and you know waiting on refunds and paying up front because of course the state needs you to do that and there's there's a lot in it now one of the one of the great things that I always enjoyed about the DRS scheme um, was it's like a defence that isn't a defence and they're like and you've heard ministers you've heard the first minister I've heard many people say the same thing, which is, oh, this is in place all over Europe, and actually yeah. it's very successful, and, you know, we should bash on, because actually this this is the best way forward, and do you think Scotland uniquely couldn't do it? Which is interesting, because it presupposes that deposit return schemes are successful entities, and it's not that they can't be, they're, they're, they're certainly the... There's certainly the ability of a DRS to be successful. The policy aims are not, you know, they're not unlike, you know, they're not. They're things that we can be in support of. Less dependence on certain packaging, and certainly recyclability, where we don't have that depend, where we can't get away from that dependence on packaging. However, it's interesting to note. So, the EU, or rather the EEA, the European Economic Area, had a look at this, and there's. There's many countries that had, that were very successful, and this was this is possibly pre. I mean, some of these countries will have moved either forward or backwards now. But interestingly, there were only when the data was taken, one, two, three, four, five, six. There were only six mandatory re deposit return schemes. And what was quite interesting is the, the the six that were in there. There were actually countries that do not have mandatory DRS and don't have a fee or anything. And you found out that without the fee, there were certain countries at the time when it was taken, so Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, um, Cyprus, Poland, all had very high um, recovery and recycling rates anyway. And that was without implying a fee. The second thing you've got there is that certain countries, such as like Estonia and such, had the fee, but weren't very good at it. It actually had a worse than average. In fact, Estonia at the time had a worse recovery rate than the UK um, did at that moment in time, while having a, a fee. So you can you can look at these things and assume they're going to be successful and they're uncontroversial. But the truth is, we've managed to screw up what should have been a fairly simple, <laughs> innocuous, non-controversial piece of legislation. But there's a pattern here, and this pattern is endemic of possibly why Nicola Sturgeon's out. And it comes from up and down the hill, up and down the hill on independence. So the independence supporters had no, um, had no reason to support Nicola Sturgeon. We then, we then move on to the gender recognition reform, which, you know, it's not something I get particularly heated up about, but it's something that I know has annoyed more women than any other policy that's ever been brought before the Scottish Parliament. And there's the one that, if somebody's going to scoff and say, oh, have you seen that Nicola Sturgeon? That's the policy that they, they wheel out to tell me that she's done badly. So we get that. We've, we've then got this... We've then got this... I don't know if you can say any more on this. I've just realised I'm going to walk into dangerous territory here, but... We've then got £600,000 donated to the SNP mm -hmm. um, for an independence fighting fund that then, you know, goes missing or isn't immediately available. Colin Beatty assures us it's woven through if you look and squint hard enough. But 
the police are actually investigating that, and I can see you sort of squirming away on the chair there. Can you give any more light on that, or is it a... I mean, it is a live police no. investigation, so, um, yeah. I so you can't can, comment. But um, there's a lot of things, there's definitely a lot of pressures, which, which comes back down to the, you know, creating single points of failure um, and putting too much well, power... Well, so Alison... I'm gonna I'm gonna press you on this a little bit, so you can't you can't answer that question. So there's a live police investigation, so yeah. Alison can't comment. Alison, could you give me just just out of curiosity here what your position was on the NEC and what what, what group you were on before you got turfed out? So I was the co-rep for Mid Scotland and Fife with uh, Roger Mullen, um, XM, uh-huh. and. I was also asked to be on the Finance and Audit Committee. No, no, there's there's a hilarious uh, circumstance. <laughs> we are. Now, that's where we're going to move swiftly on because Alison will not be able to comment, I'm guessing. Um, we don't pre-record, we don't pre-tempt these things. I just realised we stumbled into it. However, we had another, um, that after your time, after your time on the FAC, after your time there. We had Peter Merle. He gave um, was it £106,000, £107,000 to the party. Yeah. Um, Nicola Sturgeon famously questioned on TV, what do you think about this? And she said, oh, that's Peter's resources. I know nothing about it. So I don't think that was terribly true either because Nicola Sturgeon is the party leader. She's on the NEC. Are we try to say the party now takes £107,000 donations from its chief executive? Nobody checks it out. And again, Alison's going to say, dear listener, that she can't comment because reasons. But it's a bit incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, what I will say, because I was not on the FAC or the NEC at that time, but... Um, no. There, there is treasurer's reports and stuff. You would imagine that that would have been part of the, the treasurer's report to the NEC. The NEC is the director, the board of director of the party and decision-making uh, body, and also it directs the staff, in theory. Um, so we, we, we also under, have... Under the NEC, that, surely that would have been brought up in minutes, I would think. Well, the, the, this, this is, again, like the the inquiry into the complaints against Alex Salmond where we found out the First Minister, well, in this case the roles were reversed mm. um, you know, Alex Salmond had met with Nicola Sturgeon in her house and Peter, the Chief Executive of the SNP, was apparently making tea and biscuits in the other room and never bothered to ask what the meeting might have been about Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think this is again what comes into this, this dual role of, you know husband and wife, which in, in some ways will say, well, I don't know how people's personal finances are split. But then you look at it through the prism of the CEO and the, the leader of the, the party, um, not, not just first minister, but the leader of the party, which is the leader of the NEC, which is the board of directors who direct the staff, which includes the, the CEO. So th- that at that point, that relationship, if that wasn't a married couple, there would be no question of that, you know, this the party the the head of the NEC all of the NEC actually should should be aware of that so that that's about that just really didn't kind of gel with me as to why the NEC wouldn't be informed of that or if they were informed of that you know what position did they take on it given given that you know we had obviously left and you know we got quite I would say you know 
treated pretty disrespectfully, you know, from some people in the media, and there was a lot of people in the party, like Nicola Sturgeon, John Spenny, I think, Peter Sturgeon, whatever, they went, went to press to say there was nothing there, nothing to see, da-da-da-da. And, you know, I do think that, you know, the NEC need to probably step up and, and make a statement, I would suggest, on, on that. I would say as well, I mean, this this was something that was passed to us today, actually. Mm. That as because at the time Douglas Chapman had successfully um, been elected to the NEC as treasurer mm-hmm. of the yep. party, um, and then Douglas Chapman. I mean, the, the, there was obviously the resignation of the three people on the FAC. There was the resignation then of Douglas Chapman as the treasurer of the party, and he at the time said that he didn't have access to the resources required to do the job effectively. And then there was a period of time, which was about, I think it was about a week maybe, where they kind of went round the houses and got Colin Beatty back to be mm. the treasurer at that point. Who, this, this is an interesting question. Who was the treasurer... Because it's a, you know, it's mandated that someone is the treasurer. You have to have a treasurer between the departure. Sorry. You do have to have a treasurer. Yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking. It's a core role is required. Mm-hmm. You need a, you, you know, you need your your ops. You need your treasurer. You need mm-hmm. your secretary. That's that's just that's that's in there. So, mm-hmm. you know, Douglas Chapman departs. Colin Beatty's in. There's a week there. Who has overall responsibility at that point? And I think the answer we're going to find is probably Nicola Sturgeon, the head of the NEC. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was um, for for probably less than a week. But it wasn't um, an immediate. Certainly, a lot of the posts, because before I left the NEC, there was other people had left, you know, and there was vacant posts that sat vacant. And then I believe they filled our post pretty quickly. Um, but that has to be done through, you know, going through the, um, you know, the previous election, and because it's STV, who was next, and working at quorums and everything. So there would have been a period of time administratively that there would have been a, a vacant treasurer post, which there can't be. So I think the yeah. backstop is, is the, the leader, who is the leader of the NEC. So, so we're, we're, then, we're, we're then with the conundrum that we have, you know, Nicola Sturgeon has presided over the independence crisis, let's call it that, the, the <laughs> Supreme Court defeat, the, the GRR, which is not popular, um, the... Although she says she wasn't involved, there was the whole Salmond inquiry that waylaid it. I'm not particularly sold on this whole. She done the best with COVID, and I mean, I think she came out and she gave a very good briefing each day, and it was really good to see the leader of the country sort of come out and do that. Mm-hmm. However, was the handling of COVID so significantly better? I mean, because the NHS is currently paying the price off it. The vaccination rate's basically the same, if not worse, than the average in Europe. It's not, you know, I wouldn't say that COVID was handled, if you look retrospectively, in any great way that has... She might have been more friendly and more communicative than many, but the actual handling is by the by. Um, And then we move on to... Then we move on to the non, like, elevation of the junior members of the parliament to become you know, better at their jobs to get in there. We've seen great, uh, we've seen a great sort of 
split in the SNP that wasn't there under Salmond, and Salmond certainly didn't leave and create the split. He, you know, the the, the whole the big splits in the SNP were caused after him in pursuit of some policy goals that perhaps were not best put forward and had lost focus in independence. Mm. And that kind of takes us to where we're at. That there were so many things, there are so many there are so many swimming things in that sea that were pelting that little boat that just put that many holes in it that it couldn't float. And I do wonder, you know, <coughs> I was the campaign manager at Shirley Ann Somerville and I remember saying to her, Back when she used to, you know, acknowledge I existed in the room that I was in. Um, you know, we, we, we had a situation where it was very much, you know, you're going, what, what is this? You need to refocus on the actual manifesto, not these side projects that you've all invented. You need to stop being beholden to, you know, the SNP youth that have random ideas that they come up with and chase until they ruin everything that is working in the SNP. So, you know, we spoke about that and, you know, I was told basically to get back in my lane. Nicola Sturgeon's the smartest, brightest, greatest person that's ever lived. So, you know, how dare you be quiet? So I did at the time, but we... <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think I was that quiet. I just wasn't welcome in the room anymore. Um <laughs> And it comes, to, and you know, I joined Alba and tried that, but I mean, Alba's got a fair number of riotous people in it that just cause trouble every day. Um, and that leads us to where we're at now, which is that, you know, fundamentally nobody was wrong back then when we said Nicola Sturgeon's focused on the wrong things. The SNP um, is a very powerful party in politics in Europe. Um, if it's still solvent and still has some money, which again nobody actually knows, because despite it being clear as day, nobody can actually tell you if the SNP has money, because the actions of the chief executive having to delve into his own secret resources hidden from his wife, who is the first minister, to prop the party up, seem to be in controversial of solid solvency. There aren't many companies that run on the basis of, oh, hang on, the chief executive's going to rummage down the sofa and hopefully come up with £107,000 to keep us going. And that leads us to, they have a lot of data, the SNP have a lot of um, canvas data, Activate might be an old system, but the data in it is still, you know, you can still tell if somebody supported, say, they supported independence at certain points, there's targetable data still in Activate, I don't see them using it ever, they, they, they've not done that, and then the nearest one to them is Alba, who are a you know, a marketing machine, and they, they they do their marketing, and they've got the policy, and they've got they've got that going for them. Um, and I think that's the problem. I find Alba generate the better policy base, but then it seems to be like all the good policy that comes out of the Alba party then goes into a meat grinder with people who just <laughs> you can't be bothered listening to. Um, but they have no data. They have no data system. So, how do you bring, you know, does the next leader of the SNP have to bring these factions together? And is this the return of the supermajority, which was, you know, probably a great strategy. The supermajority was the strategy, but how do you now settle the, the campaign back towards independence? But how do we, how do we re-sow division here? So, the supermajority was the kind of battleship strategy that 
mm. they said he turned their guns on to actually think the, their own battleship. If, if the battleship was independent, supermajority was the way to to secure that. That the we the independence movement would then be running the parliament. You know, everything. I think you've said it before. Everything could have been done through the prism of independence. Um, it would have been not. You know, they, they could have, don't get me wrong, they would still have been unionists in the parliament, but you would have had the control mm. of that parliament in yeah. a way that the Tories have got an 80-seat majority in Westminster, so can really do what they like. Um, and it always kind of struck me why we didn't play that game in the environment that we could actually win on. Um, so that's bizarre. I've got to say, I couldn't name any ALBA policies. You know, you're saying ALBA so, well, the, the ones the ones that I enjoy anyway is the Alba Party are certainly pro republican in the sense of they want to get rid of the monarchy, which I think is a reasonable because policy. Alex Salmon, because Alex Salmon's not a republican, so I, I find a lot of this well, that's what I mean. the pol- doesn't really gel. The, pol- the, the, the policy, I mean, it is their stated policy that the Alba Party. Um, which I'm dragging up in front of me just now, is, is the, the idea that there'd be no republic. I don't know if they're pro-republican or just the fact they're, they're very anti-monarchy. I like to know well, I like that. Um, can, we just, can we just take it from there? So, so let's go for one at a time. So that republican policy is a policy not to confuse with independence. This is another thing that is a predetermined that the SNP have got into. We're going to be independent in Europe, in the EU. And it's like, well, hang on. Yeah. Independence supposed to be self-determination. It either is or it isn't. If you start loading it with we're for this or we're for that, you start to dilute your audience base. If we're really looking at Scotland and trying to bring as many people on board, including people who won't naturally be independent supporters but are so scunnered with the system down in Westminster and could possibly see a better future for them as a traditional Tory in Scotland, in independent Scotland because they're not, like, you know, dyed-in-the-wool unionists. It's it's more their kind of conservative values or whatever, or Labour it's values. Really, to, or be, to, be, to be fair, it's, you are correct. It's a policy. Sorry? It's a distraction policy. It's the same as the SNP distraction policies. Hmm? It's a shiny policy that drags people like me, political weirdos, in. I like that. I like but the whole elected head of state You'll vote for independence anyway. That's true. That's Wait, true. Yeah, um, so the cake. They, they they've got a five point plan to tackle child and family poverty. They've got they've got a you know they've got a Scotland and Europe policy that's effectively look we'd love to be in the EU but it's going to be difficult. Let's go for EFTA. There's there's a lot in there that I sometimes feel the Alba Party have much more. I mean EFTA allows you to have the single market. It allows you to have the common tra- uh, the common travel area with the UK and have the the goods with the UK, but then still meet the European standard to export there. Certain things like EFTA make a lot more sense than being in the EU, at least initially. I'm ambivalent if we go back in, we stay out. I'm actually very um, pro-looking at EFTA, because I think EFTA, for me, a lot of people, again, who are the target audience that maybe wouldn't, independence would put them off, but if you say single market access... That suddenly becomes something. Yeah. What's the quickest way to get back to the single market? But I do still think this needs to be future neutral democratic options. Uh, for me, for me, where we're missing is people giving 
choice. Scotland have such a lack of choice at the moment. Like, there's so many people I know. See if you could vote for a party that said politically homeless, they would win out of the park. Because the amount of people I know that are actually involved in politics that feel really homeless just now, they don't want to just do, you know, more of the same but in a smaller scale. They want to do something really... They want to see something fresh and different. And I just... What that is, I don't know. But I think we've got an opportunity now to start actually exploring that. And I think we'll find that the vote kept the SNP uh, disciplined, was self-disciplined before, because they were very behind a very consensus policy for independence. And I think in the eight years, nearly nine years, that's disappeared. I think day one, you know, the, the 2015 election should have been the massive catalyst for independence. And it was a massive catalyst for the SNP. And I think that was yeah. what... I think in hindsight, if we could learn something, we should not have all joined the SNP in 2015 because that is actually what made them comfortable. And actually, it's better to keep a, police, a political party hungry for your vote than think it's in the bag uh, because you, you, they then become complacent and lazy and then start to look for other things. And if you are pulling the, the independence card security blanket out the bag every, every election to get you... Because, you, because people have got no choice if they want to vote for independence then you actually don't have to really kick the tyres of your policy to to make sure you can sell it to elect it. The GRR has never been discussed in detail at conference. Self-ID has never been in a manifesto, and yet this is the thing that's ripping you know, the Scottish government's credibility from under it at the moment. Which, if you if that had had to it's be sold... The they, 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 it's a bit like a business case. If that had had to be sold to the party, to the membership... And sold, you know, on an electoral ticket, you know, and I mean on the side of a bus and not on page forty-three in small font or whatever. Then, you know, they would soon have realised mm. this was not a vote winner. If you'd taken the pulse of the polling, you would have seen it's not a vote winner. So, you know, you've really got to to say if the lessons learned for politics is to start to listen to the electorate and stop trying to preach to them. Well, there's only been a week between Nicola Sturgeon saying anybody who didn't agree with her might as well be a homophobe or a racist. Oh, yeah. And Nicola Sturgeon. What, <laughs> Nicola what Sturgeon a time to be alive in politics, you know? What a tone to set. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of it today has been about, you know, I think I said to you just before we came on that somebody has usefully gone through the speech today and said I think there was 153 mentions of I, me or my and 11 mentions of Scotland. So I would like to see that change. And I would like to see whoever is putting themselves forward to be bold, to be brave, to be fresh, to be ambitious um, for Scotland and to, to not think it's all down to them, but to build, you know, to, to come to the table with, with a, a team approach that puts Scotland and the people of Scotland on the front page. You know, mention Scotland 153 times, not yourself. You know, you, you know, we should all be bit players in in building this this jigsaw of of a better Scotland. Um, because if we don't do that, what on earth is it all about? Is it just about keeping people in careers in politics to to go round and round the roundabout? You know, with a nil sum, um, you know, outcome. So hopefully, we do see things to, that start to change um, because. I don't think this this personality politics road has got much appetite left amongst people because people are facing massive challenges day in day out in a ridiculously energy rich Scotland um, that we have 
we are constantly asked to compromise down in everything that we do where we should be like pushing up we should be pushing outwards upwards we should be setting tone internationally we you know we really do need to remember who we are as, as an enlightened Scotland that debate robustly we look at evidence based you know like approaches to things we don't just say oh that's why, why does our deposit but why are you all saying our deposit because all these other countries do it what does that even mean let's look at Scotland's solution let's look at you know it's a problem about littering or it's a problem about the environment because if the problem is about littering stop cutting back in council staff start to empty and maintain bins rural areas are a holy nightmare and actually start to look at localised solutions that are not central belt solutions to everybody um, and then if it's actually about the environment you said before look at you know pressurise industry you know like put pressure on industry particularly the big polluters like Coca-Cola to actually come up with you know breakthrough you know technologies and you know, like your kind of organisation has done lots of stuff they're getting rid of plastic straws and plastic cutlery and people are moving to compostable packaging and stuff you know pressurise the plastics industry to actually get rid of the consumption of plastic in the way that it is. You know, force technology change the way it happens if you put people's feet to the fire on things and actually resolve that problem rather than just coming up with a convoluted way that, you know, as usual, you know, the people who are least able to afford it will lose out and it'll be small businesses and it'll be consumers in rural areas who can't get their bottles because they've got, you know, their accessibility issues and stuff. You've got loads of SMEs that have got massive potential in Scotland. Speak to business and actually work out a business solution. Don't just say, we'll come up with a solution here and we'll chuck it to industry to implement. I mean, come on. That's not good enough. It leads us on to, you know, Big solutions are required, and yeah. certainly, uh, I was laughing because the news today was looking at who would win out of this. So they, they they seemed to suggest the Labour Party were going to be the main beneficiaries of Nicola Sturgeon's step back, which I find hilarious because actually the Labour Party couldn't come at a worse time because mm. there are not a bunch of more talentless people in any one group in the whole of Scotland. So I mean. The Labour Party lack any talent. <coughs> They're not going to be able to... The SNP... The fun thing about the SNP is when they're under attack in a campaign, when they're really in a campaign, which this will be, they're actually very good. They navigate things very well, they under pressure, they can hold message, they can distribute resources. By the way, there's been a lot of branches, but an awful lot of Nicola Sturgeon nonsense they've got to get rid of. There's a problem with putting Nicola Sturgeon on literally every leaflet and ruler that he uses. The fact that, oh, there she goes. So, you've got... The, they, they the winners here are certainly... ...stuff as well that they probably had to get rid of. Because they campaigned based on George Johnson been in until, they, until he decided to go. Exactly. So they've lost, lost the Boris stuff. And then, by the way, that might be why they need the loan. There's no Nicholas Sturgeon and there's no Boris Johnson to chase. Um, so the Labour Party are certainly not the winners here. The Conservatives, again, while slightly more talented than their Labour brethren, are not any better. Um, the Greens, I mean, if I was Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater, I'd be very worried today because... I don't think there's many people that will go, there's a talented pair we should keep around. I mean, Lorna Slater has been a disaster, an absolute disaster. Patrick Harvey has been invisible. Yeah, I would but agree. Lorna Slater has been a disaster. 
and we're now we're now in a situation where Labour Party ain't going to win out of this. The Lib Dems are going to lose. I mean, Alex Cole Hamilton bores the tears out me whenever that man speaks. He flip flops and everything. He has no opinion that it particularly forwards any, you know, Le- case. Labour and Lib so democratically. What's it on the whole thing with the GRR Burrich as well? That you know they, yeah, they, were, they were actually feeling. put through some bold amendments, got them voted down and voted for it anyway. So what kind of government would be yeah. waiting with that? suggest that you know you stand on principle and then just fold um and i think you know i like cole hamilton's personal vote which is actually one of the highest votes i think in uh, in the country you know he's in quite a precarious position there's a few things in you know social media and stuff just now um that i think he's kind of associated himself um to some interesting characters like so that could all play out as well i mean i, I want to say one thing about labor Labour got straight in with a party political broadcast tonight, which must have been booked. But it seems interesting timing, because I just happened to be, um, you know, at a TV, and uh, I noticed that it was Anna. It was all Anna Sarwar. So they're obviously going for the Nicola Sturgeon approach of it's all about me. And I think mm-hmm. whoever clocks on first to doing it differently may be the big winner in this, because I think people are generally scurried with all the personalities that have been dished up to them. At the moment, I think you're probably right. Um, what else do we have to cover? Or are we just going to leave it as a Nicholas Sturgeon and uh, succession off I episode? Think the only thing I think we've not covered, just to kind of mention briefly, is this special conference and now whether this actually happens mm. or how that happens and what options it's actually leaving the members. Because with you know the timetable that you set out, unless the NEC change it quite dramatically um, they, and whether they're allowed to do that out with conference which is a bit of a kind of like you know, catch 22 um, you know, how do you, how do you get permission to go to conference blah blah um, but that's really going to limit what they can do realistically in time scales but I would suggest that the arbitrary date of the October 11th 23 um, is just that and what you want to do is you know, start getting all the mechanisms in motion and things working to get independence on the front page, in people's minds, um, start to look at solutions, start to get people to start thinking the way they were in 2013 and 14 about the potential, the possibility of Scotland and how we can actually get communities and individuals and, you know, groups of people really starting to think and, you know, come up with with really innovative solutions for their that work for for them, work for their communities, because that was the the absolute bonus of the independence referendum. It actually made people truly think they could change things, and I think the SNP, sadly, from twenty fifteen, started just peddling hope like snake oil, with nothing behind it where actually in 2013-14 the grassroots start were actually not just thinking about hope, they were feeling it, They were it, it felt real. And unless independence feels tangible and relevant to people's lives, it's not going to happen. So, you know, you can have as many mechanisms and elections as you want, but it needs to be something that's actually going to take Scotland to and beyond independence. And that's where we all need to start thinking now, in my humble opinion. I think that I think that's a very good place to leave it. 
And I think that sums I think that sums up our position that and to leave on a positive note, I suppose, you know, Nicola Sturgeon had been criticised for not, you know, taking people up the hill and marching them down the other side again and certainly not making any progress on the the mission of independence. And I think that we've previously said that there are too many old faces yeah. and that they are slowing us down, the same old faces. And actually now we don't have Nicola Sturgeon or Alex Salmond in a position of particular power now. And I think it is time for the fresh faces to come forward, for the leadership contenders to move forward and to present a new idea, a new case, a new a new um, dawn to the, the darkness. And hopefully, with today's news, this is another boost to the cause, which is already, you know, it sits 50-50 on average over the trailing year or two. And I think that we're in a good place. The right momentum, the right leader could absolutely take this forward and win it in the very near future. The greatest scam that's ever been successful is the, the, the union has managed to peddle the idea that the poverty and the economic experience being felt in the UK just now is somehow normal, expected, and isn't something we could do better than by ourselves. And that is the real tragedy, because we're worrying about things like DRS schemes and we're worrying about this sort of thing, rather than focusing on the key thing that we have the economic levers, the economic drivers, to propel our country forward and seriously take forward the case for independence a much stronger economy, a much more equitable, just and fair society where the NHS is not in crisis because it can't afford more money, where teachers don't need to strike because they need more money, where we don't need to be in this repetitive cycle of 1%, 2% public pay rises, where the, the, we should be hitting 5% every year because the economy is that far out in front of us. And yeah. that, I think, is a good place for us to stop because... Someone new should be along soon, and I'm really interested to hear the debate. I'm not a member of the SNP, I know you're not either. Neither We're both politically homeless at this moment in time, but it's going to be interesting to see yeah. perhaps there's a place for us and for the future of Scottish independence. There has to be a place for everybody. And, you know, I would just say we need to raise the bar across across politics, across aspirations, across the country, across ambition. Um, and I think we need to stop settling, as you've said, for that this is inevitable and start looking at what we can do and start feeling empowered that we can actually change things. Well, on that note, you've been listening or watching to the Viva Cause podcast on this very special episode regarding the news of Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, stepping down from post and opening the door to a successor in the Scottish Parliament. I've been Graham. I've been Alison. Good night. Good night and goodbye. (laughs) Good night and good luck.